I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. first episode of this season, you may recall historian and author Dr. Susan Parker describe a difficult truth. While Black resistance against bondage, injustice, and the power structures that enforce those practices are very much a part of Black history, quite often that resistance was not successful. Dr. Parker explained that this may be part of the reason we don't hear about particular stories as much. People just don't like to hear unpleasant, uncomfortable stories. This is true of the Rosewood Massacre. Perhaps that's part of the reason it took decades for its truth to come to light. This is also true about an event that helped set the stage for the Rosewood Massacre that occurred about three years prior to the destruction of the town. But I believe it is important to hear about these types of stories, the ones that make us feel uncomfortable, as much as it is to hear about the ones that make us feel inspired or energized. Inspiration can be drawn from both. Now, in the second episode of this season, we heard from historian, author, and professor Dr. Paul Ortiz, who, as I mentioned, is a professor and author of a number of books, including Emancipation Betrayed, The Hidden Story of Black Organizing, and White Violence in Florida from Reconstruction to the Bloody Election of 1920. Now, regarding the bloody election of 1920, the following is a summary of how Dr. Ortiz describes a massive voter registration drive at that time. On January 1, 1919, African Americans in Jacksonville, Florida, began discussing plans to carry out a voter registration drive that was aimed at shattering white supremacy as well as segregation and one-party rule in Florida. That party at the time was the Democrats. The movement would involve some of Florida's most prominent Black leaders, such as Mary McLeod Bethune, and organizations such as the NAACP. Bethune is quoted as telling African Americans to, quote, eat your bread without butter, but pay your poll tax, end quote. Poll taxes applied to white as well as blacks, but adversely impacted poor, often black people more. Because of poll tax laws, white women could also be discriminated against when they went to vote. The 24th Amendment would eventually abolish the poll tax as Congress came to deem it, quote, an obstacle to the proper exercise of a citizen's franchise, end quote, and expected its removal to, quote, provide a more direct approach to participation by more of the people in their government, end quote. But that wouldn't happen for more than 40 years. Meanwhile, voter education workshops were held in fraternal lodges, union meetings, and churches. They wanted, among other things, full protection of the law, representation, equal pay, better schools, and a number of public improvements, as well as the right to vote freely without harassment or the threat of violence and corruption. This was certainly going to be a tall order given the obstacles they faced. Florida was the site of the highest per capita lynching rate in the United States at the time. Additionally, Democrats controlled the state legislature and used law, corruption, and terror to disenfranchise Blacks, while the party of Lincoln once supported and executed Reconstruction, which helped secure a number of rights for Black Americans, including newly freed slaves. As Dr. Ortiz writes in an article on the subject for the Gainesville Sun, quote, the National Republican Party traded in its Party of Lincoln standard and acquiesced to Black voter suppression in the South. African Americans asked to vote in Florida were being asked to risk their lives. End quote. Black women were very much at the forefront of this voter registration movement, even before the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was passed, guaranteeing women the right to vote. 
although black women who hadn't already would soon realize that the victory of the 19th Amendment was not necessarily a victory for them at the time. At the same time, African-Americans who'd fought in World War I were mustering the courage to demand more respect after having served their country. Eventually, the voter registration movement spread to more than half of Florida's counties. Democrats became alarmed and viewed the movement as a threat to white supremacy in the South and launched their own repressive tactics to thwart the movement and to continue to disenfranchise Florida's black residents. That didn't stop thousands of African-Americans from attempting to vote on Election Day in 1920. Hundreds were turned away from the polls. At the time, many black Floridians saw electing a Republican as their chance to start to have full citizenship. However, hundreds were turned away from the polls. Dr. Ortiz writes, quote, Whites killed African-Americans in Gaston, Manatee, and Liberty counties. The worst of the violence, however, occurred in the town of Ocoee, located in Orange County. Carloads of armed whites set out on a violent killing spree and set fire to parts of the town where Blacks had tried to vote. Scores were killed. Hundreds of African-Americans were run out of Ocoee, and their property was stolen. Sound familiar? The NAACP presented evidence of voter suppression among Florida's Black residents to Congress. Northern congressmen, however, did nothing about it, and white supremacy was upheld in Florida, effectively sanctioned by the federal government. This episode is being released on November 2nd, 2020, exactly 100 years since the Ocoee Massacre, what is known as the bloodiest elections in U.S. history. We'll talk about the implications of this further and how it relates to Rosewood. But first, a more artful description of the events of that day in Ocoee a century ago. And like incidents of a similar nature, the Ocoee massacre has never been given its proper place in history, while the damage done by the perpetrators has never been properly acknowledged. Similarly, the Florida voter registration movement and its leaders have also been relegated as a mere footnote in the field of history and related studies, despite its widespread impact. Perhaps this will change, even if it has been a hundred years. Now, what you're about to hear is part of a documentary series on the history of Orlando, Florida. It's called History of Orlando, Part 4, The Ocoee Massacre. The documentary is produced by The Orlando Guy, and use of it in this podcast is courtesy of The Orlando Guy. I encourage you to visit his YouTube page if you have time to learn more. Just search for The Orlando Guy on YouTube. centuries, Democratic-dominated state legislatures, primarily in southern states, enacted state and local laws that enforced racial segregation known as Jim Crow. As a body of law, Jim Crow institutionalized economic, educational, and social disadvantages for African Americans and other people of color living in the South. Ten of the eleven former Confederate states passed new constitutions or amendments that effectively disenfranchised most blacks and tens of thousands of poor whites through a combination of poll taxes, literacy and comprehension tests, and residency and record-keeping requirements that, in effect, shut them out of the ability to exercise their right to vote. The implementation of Jim Crow, tragically, did not escape Orange County. Coinciding with this era was a revival of the white supremacist group, the Ku Klux Klan, Originally formed during the Reconstruction period after the Civil War, 
The Klan saw the resurgence in the South after 1915, with white Democrats seeking to retain power and white superiority. One method to achieve this was by limiting Republican politicians at the state and federal level. These Republican candidates were actively registering black voters who had supported the ideas of Reconstruction. The political climate in the South in the early 20th century was dominated by white Democrats. Blacks, if involved in politics at all, were almost exclusively Republican. Jim Crow laws favored by the Democrats, however, ensured that the black vote was suppressed. John Moses Cheney was a Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate in 1920. Cheney, a Florida attorney, represented African-American clients during the segregation era and supported voter registration drives during his U.S. Senate campaign in the era of white supremacy, supported by the Democratic Party in Florida and across the South. As a Republican and as someone who actively encouraged African-Americans to vote, he was on the watch list for members of the Florida Ku Klux Klan. On September 20, 1920, Cheney and City of Orlando lawyer W.R. O'Neill, also a Republican, received a chilling letter from the Grandmaster of the Florida Ku Klux Klan, which read in part, While stopping in your beautiful little city this week, I was informed that you were in the habit of going out among the Negroes of Orlando and delivering lectures, explaining to them just how to become citizens and how to assert their rights. The letter ended with a veiled threat. We shall always enjoy white supremacy in this country, and he who interferes must face the consequences. The letter was also copied to the local chapter of the Klan with the instruction, watch these two. A powder keg had been lit, and only a few weeks later in November, on election day in 1920, it exploded in an unincorporated town just west of Orlando named Ocoee which became the site of the single bloodiest day in modern American political history. The village of Ocoee was founded in the 1850s along the western banks of the pristine Stark Lake as a camp for workers laboring in the citrus farms around Lake Apopka. By 1920, there were just over 1,000 residents of the unincorporated town. Almost half of them were black. In fact, the African-American population grew so large that two distinct black communities developed, sandwiching the white-dominated downtown district, the southern black community, known locally as the Baptist Quarters, and northern black community, commonly known as the Methodist Quarters. Two residents of the northern Methodist community grew to become very respected and prosperous. Their names were Julius Perry, known as July Perry, and Mose Norman. Each were owners of multiple large tracts of farmland on the north side of town and had attained a wealth and status coveted even by local whites. Business was booming and the upcoming November election had everyone in the black community hopeful that they might see John Moses Cheney elected to the U.S. Senate. Perry and Norman also worked on voter registration drives, signing people up, in some cases paying the poll tax for those who could not afford it, and encouraged them to turn out on election day. On November 1st, the day before the election, the KKK paraded through the streets of the two black communities in Ocoee late into the night. They threatened the black community with dire consequences if they tried to vote. On election day, November 2nd, 1920, some blacks attempted to vote in Orange County. 
One by one, they were turned away, either by threats of violence or by poll workers who found their names mysteriously absent from the voter registration rolls. With little options, most returned to their homes without casting their ballots. Mose Norman would not be deterred. He went to seek the counsel of Judge Cheney in Orlando. Cheney instructed him to write down the names of any African Americans who were not permitted to vote and the names of the poll workers who had denied their constitutional right. Mose returned to Okoe along with a handful of black citizens again seeking to vote. An altercation ensued whereby Mose was overpowered and beaten by the butt of a gun. Norman fled and afterward a group of white men, mostly Klansmen, decided to make an example of him for any other blacks who might want to exercise their right to vote. Mose sought out his friend July Perry at his home and showed Perry the note he had from Cheney about their legal rights and recounted what had happened to him. Afterward, he left Perry and his small family fearing more serious reprisals were certain if he stayed. Perry also knew that things could escalate and began preparing for the worst. Later that afternoon, a mob headed toward the home of Mose Norman, but were tipped off that he might be hiding out at the home of his friend, July Perry. The crowd surrounded Perry's home, and the group's leader, Sam Salisbury, called on Perry to come out. After a terse conversation, Salisbury grabbed Perry and put him in a headlock. Perry's daughter responded from the door by attempting to aid her father with a rifle. Salisbury brushed the weapon aside, but the gun fired, shooting him in the arm. Salisbury retreated, and a hail of gunfire erupted in both directions. During the confrontation, two from the mob were killed, as the small family inside the house valiantly defended their home. The mob left, convinced there was a large group inside, but only to recruit reinforcements from clan members in surrounding cities. July had been seriously wounded during the incident and fled with the help of his wife into a nearby sugarcane patch. Perry's daughter remained in the house to tend to her injuries, while his two young sons hid in the barn. Two or three hours passed, and the tension from the unknown was building. It must have felt like being inside the eye of a hurricane. When the fierce storm winds finally hit, no one could have predicted the immense devastation that would occur. Late at night, around 50 cars full of clan members flooded into Okoe. A manhunt ensued, and Perry was located and arrested. Perry was taken to the hospital for treatment of a gunshot wound to his arm, and then sent to jail in Orlando. Just before dawn, a lynch mob descended upon the jail and demanded the keys to Perry's cell. July Perry was severely beaten and attached to the back of a car and dragged through the streets. Arriving near Judge Cheney's home, the evil crowd strung him up on a light pole and used him as target practice. The gruesome scene was left as a warning to Cheney and other blacks who tried to vote. So extreme and unfulfilled was the cruel mob's hatred that their attention turned to the Northern Methodist quarters of Perry and Norman's home. Without a shred of mercy, the livid crowd went from one house to another, firing their guns and torching their homes. The violence lasted all day and into the early morning hours of November 4th. Panic-stricken, some families tried to fight back. Others were able to escape the relentless onslaught. 
As the homes were set ablaze, entire families, including pregnant women and children, had to decide whether they would rather burn to death or be shot trying to escape. There was no other alternative. One family of eight tried to run out the back of their burning home only to be ensnared in chicken wire and burned alive. One man was beaten senseless and castrated. When the rampage was finally over, all the Methodist Quarter's 25 homes, the lodge, school, and the church were set ablaze, leaving nothing left for the survivors to return to. The residents of the Southern Baptist Quarters were given an ultimatum, forfeit your property and leave, or suffer the same fate. The land was sold to the hateful attackers for pennies on the dollar. The Klan cordoned off the area, and for the next week, kept the now homeless black community from re-entering. The despondent residents lost everything. Mose Norman, who had left just prior to the attack, found his way to New York, never to return. He died there in 1949. lot about the Ocoee Massacre that we don't know. A number of dedicated scholars and researchers, however, have committed to helping us fill in many of these blanks. One of them is Pamela Schwartz, chief curator of the Orange County Regional History Center. Schwartz helped lead research on the massacre for several years, culminating in a new exhibit at the History Center about the Ocoee Massacre of 1920. She joins us to tell us more about it and help us sort through this complex part of history. Pam Schwartz, and I'm the Chief Curator of the Orange County Regional History Center in Orlando, Florida. So on a Saturday, October 3rd, we opened Yesterday This Was Home, the Ocoee Massacre of 1920. This exhibition is an endeavor that began for our museum a little over three years, and we began researching, and at the time we started, there was nothing with which to build the exhibition in terms of research. There were no items and artifacts and images that existed because, of course, this community had been burned to the ground for the most part and people had left and gone all over. So as a museum professional, uh, that's sort of our first stop is what are we going to build this with? And so we decided to broaden the storyline. So the exhibition actually looks at starting about 1513 with enslavement and the first individuals, African individuals who are brought to Florida, because of course, enslavement really starts with St. Augustine in Florida. So we start with that and we look at these different themes that come up through the storyline. And these are methods of both being able to rise to prosperity, but also ways you can be oppressed, like voting, property, education. So we carry these themes from 1513 up through the Civil War, Jim Crow, up until the 1920 presidential election. And we go from 1920 up into the, the Ocoee uh, massacre. And so we start with the foundation of Ocoee. How did Ocoee come to be? What was Ocoee? What are all the things that happened across hundreds of years that enabled something like the Ocoee massacre to happen at this place in this time and in this way? 
We go through a lot of nuances of the, the Koei Massacre story, and we have a lot of different display methodologies that we use to kind of get these different points together. The single most complicated factor about the Koei Massacre is how little we truthfully or factually know. There are hundreds of versions of this story, all of which probably contain some truth, but only some portion of the truth. And so we move through that. We, we break down certain pieces of the story. We've done a lot of interactives, interactive land deed maps. Some, some things that have never been done, we actually mapped all of the properties that would have been black owned at the time so that people could see them and also see what their value would have been today. So as we come out of Akoi, we look at the generational legacies of that event. We look at the descendants of those families who still bear those scars in their family tree. And from there, we move into this really terrible fact that Akoi was one of these types of events in America. And we look not only at a cursory search of other events like this, say Tulsa or Rosewood, but we also look at a series of, of more than 30 some lynchings uh, of black, uh, I think all black men in central Florida. And then we bring the timeline up and we start to move into this period called the 1950s, uh, which the FBI actually dubbed as the reign of terror in central Florida. And it was these terrible events, a series of these really awful events. And we bring it into the civil rights era and all the way up through today. And we bring all of these themes, all of these themes that touch a from 1513 up till the Black Lives Matter movement today. So in an exhibition where we thought we would have nothing to build it with, we've ended up with essentially three separate exhibitions that bring the storyline all the way up to the things that people are living and experiencing today. Of course, the Black Lives Matter movement started with Trayvon Martin, and that's part of our region here in Sanford, Florida. And then ultimately, at the end of the exhibition, we want people leaving and feeling inspired to action. And so we offer a variety of these cool little resource cards that people can actually take with them that are based on vote, act, discuss, and learn. These are ways that we can make a better world uh, and we want people to take those home. And so they're cards you can actually pull off the wall and take with you. One of the things I think is interesting with Akoi is that when we hear the story, in a few instances that we do hear the story, and Akoi was just one of a number of communities that were terrorized on election day in 1920. And so it seems like you do a really good job of telling the entire story and giving the full context. You mm -hmm. have to have the context. Mm -hmm. We have the context. It's like, oh, well, this was just a one-off. Like that, that stuff doesn't happen here. It happens in Rosewood. It happens in, no, it happened here locally. It was very likely planned. You know, and that, that's the thing is you have to provide the context to how something like that could happen here. Or otherwise, people think it's just this sort of unique event that just accidentally sort of broke out. And it's just not the case. It's just not the case. Right. Exactly. Same thing with Tulsa. Same thing I realized with most of these events. So can you just briefly explain what was a COE briefly? How did it come to be? Yeah, sure. So Orlando forms. And Akoi essentially, you know, now it's like a suburb, but back then it would have been 14 miles out of Orlando proper. Uh, and it, it's really sort of formally like white settled in the 1850s by a name, a uh, man by the name of Dr. James D. Stark. So James Stark comes in the 1850s uh, with 23 individuals he has enslaved and begins citrus groves between Lakes Stark and Apopka, which are well-known uh, landmarks here today. But between these two lakes, very fertile property, citrus groves, of course, that's what we're known for here. He sort of dabbles, but, but ends up sort of moving out of the area. But post-Civil War, every, everybody's moving around, Black, white, or anything else. Uh, people are sort of moving around, trying to figure out where their place is and where they can make it, uh, make a place for themselves. 
So there's a, a large group of, of different white individuals, several Confederate veterans come to this same area at the time was not called a co it was just uh, sort of became known as Lake Stark and settle there, buy up a ton of property, start agricultural pursuits primarily. There's some turpentine and things that come along later, but primarily it's agricultural at the time. And there are, you know, by the 1870 census, there are Black residents of Ocoee, but no names that we really recognize as also having been in the area at the time of the massacre until about 1880, 1885. So between emancipation, essentially, when you've got a Black population who's starting from scratch, They've got no money, no property. Many don't even have the clothes on their back. And so coming to these communities, trying to find this place to, to make a life for themselves brand new. So we have in Ocoee, there is there are black individuals, there are white individuals, there are, are other individuals of native background, seminal background. And there's a lot of moving around at this time here. There's comings and goings. And so, like I said, we don't see until about 1880 or 1885 any of the black residents coming into Ocoee who were still there 30 years later, uh, 30, 40 years later at the time of the Ocoee massacre. Uh, and those first individuals coming in are Moses Norman, who is, of course, well known to the story. And then Valentine Hightower are two of the first a little bit later, July Perry. Uh, they all are black men who come from South Carolina via some different routes. But they are known in the, the 1885 census as both living on uh, the property of and working for a man by the name of Captain Blueford Sims who was a Confederate veteran, but had several black laborers working for him, again, also working on his living on his property. And as people do, they started saving money. They started building wealth and prosperity. And eventually they start by about 1888 or so to purchase their own properties. Now there was black ownership of land prior, but again, I kind of focus on this land ownership because these are the people who are still there later. There's a lot of buy-sell trade happening, but between 1888 and 1892 are when you see those first properties being purchased into black land ownership from these, these specific players. So you kind of answered my next question, but it was my understanding that there was a uh, Southern Baptist quarters and a Northern Methodist quarters, but both of those were black communities, correct? So again, there's so many things said about this story. We don't know what's true, what came to be after. So generally speaking, people do break it up to the Northern Methodist and the Southern Baptist. The Southern Baptist quarters being much, much smaller. So we had staff who helped transcribe all of the land deeds that were Black owned. And then I mapped them to size and scale for how much acreage and then put it with GIS like coordinates. And then we made this map. So if we kind of scroll through time, you'll see this 30 year build in prosperity. So by the time we get to the 1920 massacre, everybody who was in a Coey who was black lost something that night. Now there were probably at least 50 to 60 other family units who were renting. We don't know where they lived. We can never know unless we find descendants who say, this was where my family lived. And we'll never be able to really truly understand what looked like the black community and what looked like the white community. The understanding uh, when you look at city directories and even census records is that they were intermingled. It wasn't like this side of the block is black, this side is white. It wasn't like that. But again, because we don't know where people were renting, it's hard to say. 
So roughly the bottom of the north quarters. So this area is supposed to be the northern quarters, which is pretty sizable. But in theory, this is where the fire and the violence broke out is right in this area. So chances are, even though this is under white ownership, there were probably countless black renters living in this area. Now, the Southern Baptist quarters was not lit on fire. Terrorized? Likely. We do not know what structures actually burned, but most, almost all accounts tend to agree that it was multiple home structures, both of the churches and the fraternal lodge, which makes sense because often the fraternal lodges would have been connected to the AME church that was really common at the time or, or that property, which would have been located not far from July Perry's home property. So chances are this is really where the majority of the violence, at least at first, broke out if that answers your question. Absolutely. But what was the the racial climate like? For example, did this kind of come out of nowhere? Was this a buildup of existing racial tensions? Did it have anything to do with the fact that Black people were registering to vote in different parts of Florida? So it's two separate questions. There's sort of generally, and then there is a little bit more uh, micro to a COE. So In terms of the state of Florida, the things you've mentioned, there are three really main factors that we look at that was that were sort of, I call it the simmering kettle, right? Things that are starting to really percolate and bubble and are are getting ready to essentially erupt. So you've got World War One. The economy's in distress. People have been thrown into positions that they never thought they would do. They've been sent overseas. They've come home. Young Black men, many people enlisted and registered. And a couple of different things with that. First of all, there's I've served my country like everybody else. I should have the same representation when I get home, rightfully so. But also seeing what other places treated people that looked like them, right? So some, not everybody, there are obviously some people who were not met well, but others who experienced a life overseas that was very different to the treatment they received here. And so coming home, there's a lot of different feelings happening with with individuals who had enlisted. You, of course, across the state of Florida do have this Black voters registration drive. So the the state being Democratic, many Black men were consistent Republican voting. Of course, if you know your politics, you know the parties were essentially switched, which is still a sort of a weird thing in history. So there, there was this drive to change the state, right, of the state of Florida. And then you've got women's suffrage. Not only white women, of course, but black women, which is this whole new voter database who's coming in and coming in strong and ready to vote. So there's all of these factors. I mean, you're looking at black men who'd not maybe come out to vote before now wanting to vote this whole new group of voters. And so in Florida, you do see this rise of this resurgence of Ku Klux Klan and white supremacy. Not that it was never not there. It just started to get vocal again. And so you see parades and rallies, you see threats happening all throughout the state. So that's sort of like on a statewide level. And of course, those things were sort of mimicked nationally. It wasn't just, it wasn't like Florida was unique really in those ways. It was the same thing the whole nation was looking at, but we do have our local situations. Now, in terms of a COE, again, part of a COE is how little we factually know or can say. There's lots of stories of how it was, but to take any of those out of context is disingenuous. So there are plenty of stories who say that white people and black people got along because 
black laborers needed work and white employers needed labor. But then we also see people saying that certain players not only were, I mean, some, some of the, the black residents were certainly doing better financially and economically than some of the white residents of Ocoee. So presumably that, not that we want to presume, but that caused difficult feelings because you've got, you've got people on the rise. Moses Norman supposedly owned his own car and that was sort of unheard of still here at the time. And we do see leading up to this, some things that make us wonder about whether it was so peaceable or not. In 1913, a man by the name of William P. Blakely, who owns the general store, He's the teacher. He's a notary. He's a person who signs off on a lot of the sale land deeds after the massacre. He's an inspector of elections. He's all of these things. Well, he sues July Perry for outstanding credit at his store. There's even more wild, like that's true. Like we found all the records from that. So you know that people aren't necessarily all living harmoniously. Now we don't know that that means they weren't friendly. Somebody just wanted their money. But what it does is it complicates relationships, relationships we can never truly know or understand between not only the black and white community, but also the black community. There are stories that say that there were hard feelings against Moses Norman's and excuse me, most Norman and July Perry because they were labor brokers and they were taking their cut, but only doing the connecting, not the working. So we, we just we don't know. We don't know exactly what was happening. But based on all of the storytelling and some of those factors more statewide and nationally, there was tension. That's the shortest version I can give you is there's certainly tension. There was also obviously Jim Crow laws, which were dictating the racial dynamics of the day as well. And you did mention the voter registration drive that was happening. Now, Mose Norman and July Perry, they were on the day of 1920, at least Mose Norman was quite adamant about voting. From what you know, was that sentiment shared throughout the Black community in Ocoee? Did voting become a priority of the Black community of Ocoee? We don't have like hard proof for that. What we do know is that there were news articles for Orlando saying that the, the lines were full immediately with Black individuals wanting to vote. And so you would come to reason that that was the case. The the thing that like with Moses Norman, of course, he was supposedly turned away for not having paid his poll tax. Well, in the Orange County, which is our commissioner records, he had been stricken from the voting list for not having paid his poll tax. So that comes so many weeks out, like there's all these like legal this many weeks, this many days that gets posted in the newspaper. So we've got a copy of the newspaper article where Moses Norman's been stricken from voting. That gives him up until 10 days before the election to rectify whatever was out of line for that. He's never placed back in. They also publish a list of the people who've been reinstated to, to be able to vote and his name is not on it. So there's no evidence. We don't have a copy of a poll tax receipt. None of the books list his name, but they also, strangely enough, the registration books don't list a lot of the people's names, including July Perry, who we also find out. So afterwards, it's called the Bureau of Investigation. It's now known as the FBI. They did a big investigation, not over murder, not over arson or terror, but for election fraud. And that includes several communities of Jacksonville, Live Oak, also a Coey. And in that, they interview William Blakely, who I'd mentioned before, who had a kind of a previous uh, history with July. He was one of the inspector of elections at Precinct 10. And that's a Coey. And he states that 114 people came to vote in a Coey 
we know there was some over 800 people total living there. So that's not a really great turnout. 114 come to vote, 27 of whom are black. So of that number, considering the ratio of, of black to white individuals living in a COE, that was actually a bit of a turnout. But supposedly within that group, Estelle and July Perry did cast their votes, according to Estelle Perry, giving a testimony to the same Bureau of Investigation agents. Granted, she was in the jail at the time. We can't really necessarily vouch for any validity there, but that is what is stated is that she and July did actually vote and that the polls were peaceful until maybe 11 that morning when the first black vote was challenged. As in a black voter came, tried to vote, and one of the inspectors of elections turned them away for whatever reason. And this is when things appear to start to get agitated in a COE and Moses Norman goes later in the afternoon and is turned away. So... 27 of the 114 of some 800 people living in Ocoee isn't a great turnout overall, but it's a, a pretty large ratio for that community, uh, especially given the fact that just a couple of days before the election, the KKK had marched about 500 strong through the streets of Orlando and as other places, Daytona, Jacksonville, basically attempting to threaten and scare Black people, specifically scare them or threaten them out of going and casting their vote, which probably did have an impact on some people. And so why don't you just take us through exactly what happened? So Moses Norman, is Moses or Moses is, was Moses Mo, nickname? Mo, okay, Mo, Mo. Yeah, Moses, Moses uh, shortened. Okay. <laughs> okay. July. Right. So. There was also a white man, his last name is Cheney. He was running for the Senate and he played a part in this story as well. So we know that after Mose attempted to vote for the first time and was turned away, he went to see uh, this gentleman. And, and what he happened? We don't know that. We don't know that. We don't know that. So we took 129 versions of the story about what happened at Ocoee and we synthesized them into one major account. So you know, like those old choose your own adventure books where you can, you can go this way or that way or that way. This is that. So did Moses normally go or did July Perry go or did Moses go to Judge Cheney's house or did he go to July's house or did he go someplace else? Every single one of the facts are pulled out of 129 accounts. You can go and look at any of those accounts, listen to oral histories, watch movies. When we take 129 versions of this story and we break it down to only what we can prove through primary source documentation or that all 129 accounts can say, we are left with four paragraphs. That's all. That's compared to, I think, 14 pages of text, four paragraphs. So one of the haziest areas of this story Everybody agrees Moses Norman, well, some people, there's some wild stories out there, but Moses Norman went to the polls. He is turned away and not allowed to cast his vote. From there, we cannot really factually say anything of the way the events went until the armed white mob shows up at July Perry's house that night. Whether he went and came back, whether he had a gun or not, whether he was beaten or not, accounts said he was killed, whether he went to July Perry's or Judge Cheney's, there is no evidence and there are so many accounts that say so many different things that we cannot factually say that. It may or may not have happened. The mob, though, did eventually show up to July Perry's house. Were they looking for Moses Norman when they went there? 
It's it's hard to say. We we aren't sure necessarily uh, what they were doing. You know, Moses Norman and July Perry were to have been friends. There were a lot of accounts that said people were gathering at July Perry's, planning to basically have an uprising. People said Moses Norman was there. People said July Perry was the one causing the problems, and he was the one who got Moses to go do this stuff. Again, there's a lot of different stories, but what we know is that the white armed mob, who many of which were police officers, also members of the Ku Klux Klan, went to July Perry's that evening, demanded he come out and thus breaks out violence and shooting, beatings and fires. So again, there's a lot of stories, but for every one thing that you've heard, there's at least 50 versions of that. To be clear, is it your position that the massacre was sparked because Mose Norman tried to vote? Or is that even in question? I mean, that's in question, but it's not in question that that wasn't the catalyst of reason why they, mm-hmm. they chose to break it out. In my professional opinion, all roads would lead to that they were just waiting for a reason or they were just waiting for something. There was so much tension. You know, there was, there was a lot of things going on. There are individuals who think it was entirely premeditated. And I think that would have been really hard to orchestrate in the way that it happened. So I don't know that it's a matter of, we made a plan to do this thing so much as this is our opportunity to do a thing, which is to try to wipe out this community. But again, it's, it's not like we have any way to, prove all of those bits and pieces along the way, but certainly, um, certainly they took advantage of any little issue to cause problems. And was voting day sort of the opportunity? Did the tension erupt because Black people were trying to vote and they had been trying to vote and exercise their rights? Certainly. I mean, a lot of it is, is wrapped up into just, just plain voter suppression trying to find ways to disenfranchise black voters. And when those black voters sort of rose up and said, nah, this is our our legal right. We can do this. It just, it caused the pot to boil over really. Uh, And again, was it also about relationships beforehand? Was it also about property and prosperity in the black community? I don't think this all boils down to Moses Norman saying, I will vote. You know, I think there's probably a lot more, a lot more to that, but we can't, we can't factually point to thing or an, or another, but I don't think it's all rested on the fact that Moses Norman didn't get to place his vote and how this entire thing happened, but it certainly played a big role. Can you then explain what happened once the mob showed up to July Perry's house? So uh, details are hazy, but if you sort of break them back to the factual story, they want to speak to July Perry or gain access to him and the, the fighting breaks out. Naturally, everybody was was on edge and on, on the defensive. And so when the shooting breaks out, Sam Salisbury, who is one of the white officers who's leading this group, is shot in the arm. And a lot of things are happening. We don't know who shot who and how that all went down. But Towards the end of this, July Perry's wife and Caritha, his daughter, have escaped from the home. Caritha had been shot in the arm. July Perry is shot multiple times, escapes from the home. He, they're hiding out in sugarcane. But in order to drive Black people from their homes, the white individuals were setting places on fire. And so basically the ultimatum was come out and get shot or stay in and burn. 
And some people did either of those is our understanding. We will never know how many black people were killed factually. We have a few different research projects. One, we're doing genealogy forward. So we've taken everybody we can place in a COE in 1920 that is black and looking for them. So if I can find you in a 1922 city directory, it means you did not die. If I can find you in 1930 census, you did not die. We can't track everybody that way. Currently, the research is ongoing, but we've uh, we've successfully tracked 119 out of 280 or so people. So we'll just, we'll never be, we'll never really truly be able to know. Right now, from our professional opinion, we say in this event, We have an unknown number of structures were burned, but that at least four people were murdered. That's July Perry and at least three other black individuals. There is a Carrie Hand Funeral Home Undertaker's Memoranda that lists three black individuals who were burned to death, put in pauper's caskets and buried in a mass grave. There is nobody else accounted for in primary resources. That does not mean others did not die. It just means we don't. and, And even those three individuals, we don't know their names. That wasn't important enough to the white people to document. And maybe they didn't know based on the fact that they had burned to death. Um, But so as historians, given the current research, our answers may be amended uh, in the future, but at least four people were killed. An unknown number of structures were burned. Every black person in a COE was impacted in some way. The white mob eventually finds July Perry and they take him to the jail in Orlando. He does receive some level of medical attention. We don't know how much. But he's ultimately left in the jail cell at the jail with a lone single jailer who'd only been in the community for a few months. A white mob breaks in, takes July Perry, brutalizes him. We say that because there's a lot of different versions of what was done to July. can be very graphic content. But he was brutalized and ultimately he was lynched and hanged and murdered. Later, his body is taken down and removed to Greenwood Cemetery and buried where he still rests today. But the story has always gone that everybody left and left immediately and never returned. And the white people took their land. And that was the end of the story. And it's not true. There's a lot more nuance. And it's a lot, in a way, in a way more horrific. It takes six to seven years for all of the Black families to sell their properties and leave. Not everybody left because not everybody's homes burned. The Southern Quarters wasn't impacted. So those people stayed. Uh, We have a letter from Annie Hameter saying we still have our home. It didn't burn. People are talking like this was premeditated. We've got to try to sell our property and get out of here to save our lives. But, and this is all of course not, you know, quoted, but um, having a hard time selling their property because everybody's trying to, to get rid of their property so they can go and get out of there with their life. Into the next July and August, there's ongoing terror in Ocoee. There are white people going through Ocoee throwing dynamite in black people's homes. A man by the name of George Betsy, who's actually July Perry, his brother-in-law, is now living in Paramore, which is a a community inside of Orlando, not out in Okoe. He's picked up on an anonymous tip for bootlegging. And then he is taken by a lynch mob from the officers who pick him up, taken out, basically beaten, stripped, painted red and white striped with a bag over his head and tied to a post for dead. And he reported that the people who had done that to him had told him he was talking a little too much about what had happened at Ocoee last November. So the terror continued. The white people were not successful in that first instance. And so they continued to terrorize the community. It's not that the community didn't fight or try to stay or try to figure it out. It's way, way more horrific. So over the next, you know, one to to six years, the black community sells their properties. Some people had a profit. 
Some people not. Land deeds, unfortunately, don't give us the full picture of what a sale was. It might say $10 and other valuable considerations. They could have gotten money on the side or here's 10 cows. So it's really difficult to know what the land was exactly purchased for, what it was actually sold for. We know that no matter what, people were forced off their land, regardless of what money they did or did not make. And we know that given the current research, we continue to do this, but given the current research, the land that was formerly owned by Black individuals at the time of the 1920 Ocoee Massacre is worth more than $9 million today and counting. So is it safe to say there were more lynchings in Ocoee or more burnings of homes or? Not, not, not that we know of. I mean, there's, there's these different little ways, right? At the time the massacre happened, a lot of people sold their property in December 1920. There are a lot of land deeds. We don't know of any like large scale accounts and that probably would have, you know, potentially made it into the news. We find, you know, the things that I had mentioned, but I'm sure that there were a lot of ways the black community continued to be terrorized. I don't know if you can say the word small, but in less major ways than the the massacre uh, in order to continue to try to drive them out of the community. And at that point of 1926 or so, Ocoee is an all white town uh, until about 1976 when the first individual tries to move back in and leaves shortly thereafter due to cross burnings on his lawn. So for almost half a century, half a century, it was a white sundown town after this horrific event. Sundown being... Sundown being, supposedly there was a sign outside of a Koei. People talk about it all the time and say that it said different things, but basically letting people know that even if Black people came to a Koei to work during the day, you'd better be gone by sundown or else. And so it was a way for white communities to keep Black or other minority individuals out of their community for whatever purposes they felt that was necessary. And finally, what is Ocoee like today? How does the legacy of the massacre of 1920 impact the community of the present day? I would venture to say a majority of people who live in Ocoee don't know this happened there. So Ocoee is a very diverse town. You know, the first Black families and, and other minorities start trying to move in around the late 1970s to 80s. In the 1990s, there was a group called the Democracy Forum here who sort of banded together to start to create visibility around the story of the Ocoee Massacre and to have really difficult conversations. And even in the 90s, when they would have town halls, there were descendants of the white perpetrators who were vehemently opposed to speaking on this in the, 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 the late, late 1990s, early 2000s. Uh, and so, you know, why are you drudging this up? People didn't want to talk about it. But today, Ocoee is very diverse. There's been steps made in 2018, so 98 years after the event, the town of Ocoee put out a proclamation recognizing the event and, and stating we're no longer a sundown town. And they'll be having events for the 100th year remembrance. And they, they definitely recognize it. That's not to say that there's you know, not more work to be done within the city. For the longest time, Ocoee was a place that Black people just simply did not go. You didn't necessarily know why, it's just you didn't go. But there are a lot of Black residents and and otherwise in Ocoee now. And I I don't live there, so I can't really speak to how how it feels. You know, we've talked to to individuals, both white and Black, who do currently live there. And we we do know that a lot of people from Ocoee have been like, I never heard of this. I had no idea. Like, you know, and so that's that's kind of surprising because it's a major event in the history of a very, really, really a small community. 
So that's sort of where it's at today. There's a lot of events that are going to be happening for the 100th year mark. We've got our exhibition. We've had a lot of people come through and just, you can't, I found that at the end of this exhibit, it's not the appropriate time to ask what people thought of the exhibit because they just kind of look at you blank. And then I'll, I'll hear from them hours later, like, okay, now we can talk about this. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's, it's so, it's so overwhelming. And we've, we've really done a lot of original research into the event. We show a lot of documents nobody's ever seen. For a lot of the descendants of the families to come and see the land map, they've never seen their family's properties mapped before. They didn't know what its value. So for a descendant who should have been the heir to that property to learn that that's worth 1.3 million today is really hard. It's really hard. I I can't even imagine what that feels like. Finally, and I think we've mentioned this earlier, but just to reiterate, Ocoee was not an isolated incident, but it was emblematic of what was happening across Florida at the time. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, there were acts and lynchings and things happening all over. To our knowledge, really the next like big, big scale to us is 1923 with the Rosewood massacre. Of course, unfortunately, after events like Ocoee and some of the events that, that were pre to Ocoee, it's almost like it gave an idea to people that this was a way that they could take black land and they could take black prosperity away. It, it sort of was part of a trend in doing that. And I wouldn't be surprised if if Rosewood wasn't partially inspired by, if that's a word you can say, by a Coey, uh, and that these other events of terror kind of went on from that. And there's a lot of eerie similarities between what happened in Rosewood and what happened in a Coey. And, you know, I mentioned that 1950s reign of terror, you're looking at a lot of the same players, white individuals, FBI agents, local law enforcement, local people who were involved in one or more of these events between the Coey massacre between the Rosewood massacre in 1923, jumping all the way up to the 50s, you're seeing some of the same players when it comes to the Groveland Four, the Mims, uh, Harry and Harriet Moore bombing, uh, the bombing of the Cremette, and some of the, the Ku Klux Klan who are mentioned in some of those records. So there's a lot more linking between these events that happened in Florida, I think, to be done. What are the similarities between Rosewood and Nokoe that you mentioned? So a white issue with a black individual and it erupts and burns down a community, murders countless black individuals and takes all of the prosperity and runs everybody away. They're same, the same story that just have different points in their timeline. Rosewood happened over several days. That's a little different because a Coey, the Coey primarily, you know, the actual carnage happened just sort of on a day and tonight. There's things that continued, but Rosewood happens over days. Another big difference of Rosewood is, of course, the successful claim bill from the descendants. That is not something that people in a Coey have received. And there's, of course, still the scholarship fund and things. So there, there are differences, of course, also the reasons why it started, you know, voting versus an accusation of assault on a white woman. But really, it all begins with a white accusation against a black individual and somehow that singular accusation becomes the death of an entire community. episode, we'll continue to explore the implications of the Ocoee Massacre and how it relates to Rosewood. 
Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our website, dreamsofblackwallstreet.com, to subscribe and keep up on all of our latest episodes. Mm-hmm.